I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Claire Smith, the first woman and fourth African-American presented with the Baseball Writers Association of America's Career Excellence Award. That's the highest honor given to a baseball writer. In part one, we talked about diversity in baseball and in sports media, where her Hall of Fame career had a big impact on other women and people of color. Claire discussed a terrible incident in 1984 when she was forcibly removed from the locker room of the San Diego Padres. She also recounted some lighthearted memories of covering George Steinbrenner and the Bronx Zoo Yankees. We'll continue our baseball talk in this second and final episode. We focused on players such as Sandy Koufax and Don Baylor and why they're cherished by Claire. And she recalls some special career moments. For me, it was special to talk with Claire. Let's pick it back up. When I think back on my own career, I, I think about the community and the camaraderie. And like you said, the, the relationships you develop with the writers and uh, you helped grow that community. And I think that's, that's so important. Also, you mentioned it yourself. You know, that was one bad day in nearly 40 years of covering baseball. And we talked a lot about that one bad day, but um, you don't like want that on your tombstone, do you? <laughs> you, don't, yeah. you don't want that like in second graph of your obit, you know, uh, you know, right. because you, you covered a game that you loved and you loved doing it. And uh, so I don't want to, I, I wanted to, I wanted to touch on the significance of that moment because it was so important. I believe, and I have so much admiration for you and how you handled that. But I also wanted to ask you about, I guess, the good things in baseball. Uh, you know, the joy and the ecstasy and the glory of baseball. Because like you said, you loved it since you were young and you grew up loving the game and you got to write about a game that you love and then become an editor on TV. When you think about nearly 40 years chronicling the game, do you have a favorite baseball story? Oh, okay. So I'm going to show my age here, 1986. So I'm four years into the career, but I'm still a fangirl from 1966. And in 1986, the Dodgers announced that for the first time since 1966, Sandy Koufax is going to put on the uniform. He's going to come to spring training as an instructor. So reporters from far and wide um, decide to make the, the trek to Dodger Town, that magnificent uh, spring training site in Vero Beach. Beach. Yeah. And um, with the idea that we're going to go and talk to Sandy Colfax, who basically is the Greta Garbo of baseball. He <laughs> right. is um, elusive. He is so shy. I don't know if shy is the word. He once told me that he just doesn't think that anybody really wants to hear from him anymore, which is amazing because everybody wants to hear from him. He only had one of the greatest pitching careers ever. The, exactly. He was a lefty for the Dodgers in those 60s. 
Exactly. And and he's he's he made his own mark on the game uh, on the field and outside the field. It was legendary that he uh, declined to pitch on Yom Kippur during um, the World Series. Yeah. During the World Series, and not because he was um, that observant, but he knew it meant it would what it would mean to Jewish people around the world that he made this decision. So he was such a moral, he is such a moral and ethical person. And everybody wanted to hear from him because it had been 20 years. Right. So a bunch of writers, uh, Yankee writers, uh, and I get in a car and we drive to Vero Beach uh, from Fort Lauderdale. And we get to this beautiful, beautiful site. And he's on the mound. He's pitching He's pitching batting practice. And uh, we get to stand behind right at the cage and watch him pitch batting practice. This is like 20 years after he retired. After he retired. Right. And the Dodgers are telling us that when he first started, they had to take him aside and tell him that it was batting practice and he was supposed to let the hitters hit the ball. <laughs> no, but you could see this, the curveball. You could see the brilliance of it. Um, he broke Dusty Baker's bat. He, he looked like he could step on a mound for any major league team and pitch. And what occurred after was that he was told that a group of Yankees beat writers had come in to speak with him. And there were probably four of us. And uh, would he take time to speak to us? And he did. But it was funny because we connected and it almost became a one-on-one interview. Hmm. And it was so amazing. Number two or 1A after Jackie on my list, um, the bucket list in baseball is, as you know, it's very important to try to meet your heroes and, and more important that they don't disappoint you, that they don't right. turn out to be jerks or, or the worst case scenario, racist or sexist or whatever. Um, but he was such a gentleman and he took the time and I, ne- I will never forget that. It was just amazing. Why do you think you connected with Koufax? I don't know, but the connection lasts till this day. And every time I see him at Dodger Stadium, it's a big hug. When they unveiled his statue this past season, I, I went to L.A. to be there for that because I couldn't imagine not being there um, for that. And... Again, he was just surprised and big hug and big thank you for coming, you know, from the East Coast to be there. And I, and I, I, I joked with him and I said, uh, this is where I have to be today. This, it's, it, it's his day. And, and he went out of the, his way kind of to say the same thing, um, in 2017, 
when I was given the Writer's Award because it's on a Saturday and Hall of Famers don't make their first public appearance till Sunday. So mm-hmm. he didn't have to be on that stage, but he was. Mm-hmm. And and he told me that it, it was important to him to be there, not only um, for me, but also for Rachel. So to have Rachel Robinson and Sandy there it just meant the world to me. And and then there was Joe who was recovering from his various surgeries and he was on crutches and everything. Joe Morgan, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you think about Kofax, you're right. He's so reticent as a public figure. You have gotten to know him over the years. Is there something you understand about him now that you didn't before you developed this relationship? I didn't know that... Um, you know, the, the common thread throughout all of this is Jackie. And I didn't know that he was taken under Jackie and Rachel's wing. He was one of those bonus babies back in the day. If you were a bonus baby, the team that signed you had to keep you on the roster or lose you back into the draft. Yeah, and he was terribly wild. He had no control. He was he was actually a basketball player at the University of Cincinnati and then signed. And he as a young man, he had this amazing fastball and curve, but he just couldn't control it. Exactly. And and he wasn't the pitcher on his high school team. Fred Wilpon was the pitcher and, and Sandy, I believe, was the first baseman. So uh yeah, Sandy, I don't think he really started to pitch until he signed that contract because, like you said, he was a basketball player. So anyway, he explained that in that first year where they hardly used him, but he was on the roster, and there is always going to be resentment um, from players who think that that 25th spot should go to an actual major leaguer. Um, and they didn't always look kindly on on bonus babies, but Sandy said that Jackie and Rachel went out of their way uh, to make him uh, feel welcome, to make sure he had the proper food to eat, that he had company, that he knew how to dress as a major leaguer. And um, so he, he loved them uh, and always had, always will love them. And for the Rachel to be there and to see that connection between Sandy and Rachel and to actually get to sit next to Rachel during the ceremony, I've known Rachel and, and her family for a long time. They're very, very special people. That's a wonderful story. I, I never knew about the connection between Jackie Robinson and his wife and um, and Sandy Koufax. Right. And and the thing is, is that it's it's kind of strange because I'm I'm reticent in talking about things that Sandy and I talk about because I know how private he is. Um, so kind of kind of wrestling with this myself, even if you pose and take a picture with Sandy He's, he asks you, begs you not to put it on social media. And if you do, uh, his his wife, Jane, will get in touch with you and ask you to take it down. Wow. 
You know, it's it's interesting. I used to cover a lot of college basketball, and at several Final Fours that I covered, uh, I would see Sandy there. He would always sit in the front row behind a basket. And I was once having breakfast, and he was at a table next to me. And I just, I was reticent to say anything to him. So I just right. left him alone. I knew of his reputation and his, his want for privacy. And uh, I had no reason to speak to him other than fanboy curiosity, I guess. Right. So I just left him alone. I respected that. But he had this regal presence. You would just see, there's Sandy Koufax. There was a royal nature about him. And I think that maybe I never met him, but I had a sense that that same aura was around, uh, um, around Roberto Clemente. Mm-hmm. And... Roberto's aura was probably a wall built to protect him it, it, from everything I I read and hear. But Sandy, yeah, Sandy was royalty without the... Um, Sandy was just, was just different. And I think that the fact that he comes and goes from baseball there are long periods of time you don't see him and then he's back the the respect you see that the other uh, hall of famers give him and there are a lot of egos on the stage at a hall of fame gathering oh i bet <laughs> well there should be as well right. as should be and the fact that there's a there was a wine club within the hall of fame club and you had to be really, really, really on top of your game to be in that club. And Joe was in that club. Um, uh, Sandy, Tom Seaver obviously had the vineyard out in California. And and it was a very exclusive club. And they had no qualms about rejecting other members from the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Guys would come with their chosen bottle of wine, and if it didn't meet the standard, they were not yeah. allowed in, in the room. Uh, it's The other thing about Sandy is he has a wicked sense of humor. He's, <laughs> just, he's just a very funny guy and uh, just, just a gentleman. Well, then think about the golden opportunity of, of just developing a rapport and a relationship, a working relationship with a gentleman like that who is such a big name in the game. So you're growing up, a, you know, a Dodgers fan as a child because of your, of your mom. And, and here you are with one of the all-time great Dodger legends and baseball legends. And your job, through your job, you develop that type of relationship. That, that's very special. And I think I gravitate towards the pitchers. Uh, I asked Oral Hershiser once why uh, he and Glavin and 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 David Cohn and so on and so forth ended up being the spokespeople for the union during the labor wars. And he mm. said, because we have so much time on our hands. But <laughs> they're, all, they're smart. They're the card, quarterbacks of the game. Uh, Juan Marichal, uh, Fergie Jenkins. They have so many stories to tell. And the pictures, uh, Phil Necro, I could sit and listen to Phil for hours and hours because he is without a doubt one of the funniest people in the world. And when he would sit with his brother Joe, it was just a riot because 
They do have a lot of stories to tell because they had so much time on their hands to make them up. <laughs> okay, do you have a Negro Brothers story for us? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Negro Brothers, uh, when they were on the Yankees together, they couldn't go to a town without um, finding a place that was having a polka dance because they came from the Polish environs of southeastern Ohio, and they loved to polka. So they would go <laughs> polka dances all the time. Um, their parents hated when they had to pitch against each other, but neither one ever forgot the record. Um, they did match up against each other, and Joe... He held the record, 5-4. He won five of the nine decisions. And he did so because he beat Phil one to nothing in a game in which Joe hit the only home run of his career. Really? (laughs) (laughs) Off his brother. Off his brother. And he wrote a rather risque poem owed to this moment that he would recite every chance he had. Can we hear it? I don't have it memorized. I just remember that he would drop it on Phil whenever he could. <laughs> I can only imagine what yeah, kind of well, words were in that If you knew Joe, you knew <laughs> that it was going to probably be a little X-rated. I will try, I will try to get a copy of that. Um, I know their sister is still alive. Maybe she knows what it was. But Joe, Joe was a stitch, and that... That friendship, they were each other's best friends. They spent the winters mm. fishing together. Um, they loved to fish. They loved to dance. They loved to tell whoppers. But most of all, they loved um, pitching um, and performing and winning because it was something that that kept their parents going. And their dad was the person who taught them how to throw the knuckleball because he mm. was a semi-pro pitcher down in that area of Ohio. And then he hurt his arm and the only pitch he could throw and win with was the knuckleball. Really? So dad, dad taught it to the Negro boys. I didn't know that. He did. And, and Phil and Joe grew up in this tiny little town that uh, also was home to John Havlicek. And John was Phil's best friend, and Joe used I think it's called, is it, it's, uh, it's a valley, something valley in eastern, southeastern Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's several athletes who came out yes, of there. Yes, yeah. a, it's a hotbed of, of great athletes. But John Havlicek came to Phil's induction at the Hall of Fame, and Phil told me he likes this so much better than his Hall of Fame because he said that Hall of Fame lets everybody in, but this is just the players. <laughs> But this is more yeah, club. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So he said John had a ball just running around uh, that weekend. And also attending that weekend were members of the Silver Bullets, the women's uh, professional baseball team. That's Bill right. Phil. Yeah. Phil was a manager. Joe was a pitching coach. And it lasted a few years. <laughs> but they gathered again to come up to um, Cooperstown to honor Phil. Well, the Negro Brothers are certainly indicative of the characters you could come across in baseball, which are so unique. I also think of just so many amazing moments that you witnessed as a reporter, and you covered all but 
two of the World Series from like 1982 to 2020. Do you have a favorite, like a moment that you witnessed as a reporter? Oftentimes it's on deadline, so you, <laughs> you're just trying to survive. But, uh, yeah. I mean, you think about it, the Gibson Homer, the 89 earthquake, the Red Sox and Cubs break their jinx, 9-11 World Series in New York. You, you saw all this uh, through the lens of journalism. What sticks out to you when you first think about those days? Remember the 9-11 World Series, the Yankees, I lost to the Arizona eventually, but it opened in New York City and um, Mm -hmm. the Eagle, (laughs) the Eagle coming in during, flying into the, onto the field uh, as part of the ceremony, uh, George W. Bush throwing out the first pitch. That was a very uh, impassioned moment for New Yorkers. But I remember the reporters in the basement of Yankee Stadium were, some were just shaking because they thought with the president there and this large crowd, wouldn't that be an, an irresistible target to perhaps other terrorists still active hmm. in the country. Yeah, this was like only, a, you know, not a couple of weeks or so after exactly, 9-11. Exactly. And one reporter was close to tears because he he thought it was irresponsible of the president to be there. So you had all these different takes on it, but people forget that that reporters have families and, and so on and so forth. Um, some reporters I admire greatly couldn't, couldn't bring themselves to stay for the resumption of the 1989 World Series after the earthquake because their families were so frightened by it. Right. And most everybody just wanted that series to be over. And I think that the, the A's put it to bed in the first and only game played after the World, mm-hmm. World Series. So I survived that. Uh, saw baseball played in Cuba when President Obama tried to um, open up relations a little more and he was at our game. And I was able to help Eduardo Perez um, frame the questions for the president that he wanted to ask. Tony's son, uh, right? Tony's son, yeah. yes. And, and Tony being a Cuban exile um, and Eduardo having lots of relatives still there, he had seen the poverty because he'd spent the the better part of the week with his relatives who who just wanted to come visit him, and he would say, "Sit in the restaurant, eat, eat." And all they all they wanted was anything but chicken because that's all they had um, back on their farm farm area, and they were sick of chicken, so they ate a lot of steak. He had asked us to bring all those millions of little bottles you collect of shampoo and lotion and everything and then just throw in the corner of your house. You collect them from the hotels and people filled up their suitcases with those so they could bring to Tony's relatives. He, he was anxious about uh, taking part in the interview with the president. What should he ask? And I said, why don't you tell him about your family and tell them that they want to know how 
this is going to impact their lives. Will this this opening of relations um, make their lives better because they make the Cubans average, I think, $17 a month in income. And they got along so well, Eduardo and President Obama, that what had been planned as a half an innings interview sitting down next to the dugout uh, turned in, I think, to one or maybe even two innings of of conversation. And they got on uh, along so well that Eduardo actually asked to take a selfie with the president. And he has this <laughs> wonderful uh, once-in-a-lifetime selfie with President Obama. And I think, That's yeah, great. they could have gone on um, much longer, except the Secret Service members were kind of tapping the president on the shoulder, reminding him that Air Force One was waiting to take him on to <laughs> the plane is yeah. idling. I think we yes. need to go <laughs> uh, flying into Cuba and seeing Air Force One way down the tarmac was pretty, pretty amazing. Sports stars, they're like superheroes, but they're actually real, which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see, they've all got a story, but too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant, Payne Stewart, Flojo, Phil Hughes, Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star, a new series from Crowd Network. Yeah, baseball, baseball also took you to London, right? Didn't you cover the Red Sox and yeah. Yankees over in London? Yes, they played something. I don't know if it was baseball, but they played something because the home run, home runs were flying out of the stadium that had no. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! The ball there. was juiced for London. No, 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 no! <laughs> it wasn't that. It was the stadium uh, was a track um, uh, venue for the Olympics, and so it was designed to have as little air resistance as possible. Oh, wow! So was this Wembley Stadium? Was it in Wembley? The big Olympic stadium? Well, no. Well, Tony, this is my memory going, but it was an Olympic stadium and it was a track venue. Hmm. And the home runs were just flying. I think the score at the end of the first inning was 6-6 and they didn't really (laughs) stop. And the funny thing was after the, I believe the Yankees had first, the Red Sox, no, the Red Sox hit first and the Yankees tied them. And the Brits started to get up and leave. And we we're like, no, 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 there are eight more of these innings that, you know, it was the first time that I think baseball was played in a country that had no working knowledge of the game. Well, I know in uh, 20, in 2000 at the Sydney Olympics, I covered those Olympics and I went to the baseball game. Tommy Lasorda was coaching the USA team. And after a couple innings, I realized that I don't think people here even know what the hell's going on. So I just went out, walked around the stadium and interviewed all the Australians and basically tried to write about baseball through the eyes of Australians. And yeah, yeah, it was really interesting because they thought it was sort of like cricket and uh, they were having fun with it. But hey, they were serving beer and there's hot dogs and it's baseball. Exactly, exactly. And that was that was the same deal in in London. We did a panel at the British Library next 
uh, at, next to our hotel. And the audience, uh, one question was, well, do you think that Americans will like cricket now? And it's like, no, <laughs> it's not the same. And no, Americans are really kind of stubborn about being told they should like other sports like soccer and things like that. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but it was fun. They, they, the Yankees and Red Sox put on quite a show. I don't think the Red Sox recovered from that trip because they went into a free fall after that. And um, the Yankees took off, if I recall correctly. But the I remember walking past uh, a couple of Bobby's uh, police officers and they were talking about the home runs. And I think they were talking about Judge. And did you see that that ball that that boy hit? It went so far. <laughs> it, was, it was so funny. You mentioned a couple individuals I wanted to ask you quickly about before we wrap this up. And one is Don Baylor. And uh, mm-hmm. you co-authored his bio, Nothing But the Truth, A Baseball Life. You know, Don is not a name that non-baseball people probably recall a lot. But he was such a presence in the game. Great player. Great manager. Why was Don Baylor special to you to cover? Well, like... Dallas Green, before him, he was larger than life. He was a presence. Dallas had a booming voice, but Donnie was quiet. But it was like that old um, commercial, everybody leans in to listen to what he had to say. He was a natural leader. Uh, Even if the team had a captain, Donnie was the, the real captain of the team. And where he went... Teams won. Mm-hmm. Um, the one failing grace, I'm sure, was that he couldn't work that magic in New York. He couldn't overcome the circus. So George let him go to the Red Sox, traded him for Mike Eastler, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he said that Donnie's bat would be dead by the roadside by the All-Star game. And Donnie went on to have a great year for the Red Sox and the Red Sox ended up going to the World Series against right. in 86. And Donnie had a large part to do with that. And then he ended up with the Twins. The Red Sox fell apart after their disastrous World Series and they broke the team up. And he was traded to the Twins and ended up going to the World Series that year and actually winning a ring with the Twins, uh, playing with Kirby Puckett and for Tom Kelly and everything, had a home run in the World Series. And then the next year ended up on the Oakland A's and again in the World Series. So Donnie had this reputation that managers wanted that presence in their clubhouse. But Don Baylor, he was he was so special to cover. Yes. Um, Don, I, I mentioned Dallas Green before because I wanted to compare the two in another very important way. Neither one ever went off the record. Okay, Mm. what they said was what they meant to say at the time. If they had to go back and fix it, they would, but they would never deny saying it, Mm. would never put it on a reporter saying it was taken out of context, blah, 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 blah. But Donnie had a way of speaking and pulling, if it was a controversy, pulling it on to his shoulders. Uh, He was known to 
kick over a food table. <laughs> we saw a young player being grilled um, about maybe losing a game, making an error, costing the team uh, a victory by his play or lack of hitting, and so on and so forth. Don would see this and felt it was on him as a himself as a veteran to pull that attention away and get such a youngster off the hook. So he'd do it uh, by kicking over the food table or taking uh, <laughs> a temper tantrum. Perhaps the funny, the two funny Don Baylor stories. Uh, Dusty Baker and Don Baylor were like brothers. They were brothers. And they were both notorious brawlers in their earlier days. <laughs> But by the time, um, let's see, Dusty was on the A's and Donnie was on the Yankees. Um, Neither one was in the game at Yankee Stadium. They were getting on towards the end of their careers. Uh, So there started to be a little headhunting in the game Mm -hmm. and and feelings were being... um, hurt and tempers were rising and here uh, two guys that weren't even in uniform all of a sudden are in the dugout and one is uh, top stepping it glaring at the other dugout (laughs) and the other one's got a bat in his hand doing the same thing Um, and they're not even in lineup but uh, as someone who knew them both very well I'm upstairs watching this this little uh, play uh, (laughs) between the two of them. And I'm laughing like, yeah, okay, let's see this. This is going to be one for the ages. So what happened? Uh, Nothing happened. No brawl. But Mm -hmm. after the game, I had to go and and see what was up. And it's like, oh, Donnie wasn't going anywhere. Uh, Dusty knew, you know, they were just drawing back and forth between me and laughing. And But it would it would have been, that would have been a dance because they wouldn't have ever tried to hurt each other. <laughs> but they had to play their roles and, and they played them perfectly. But Dusty was, oh man, he loved to fight. And Donnie, uh, he, he actually fought so much that it was a concern on the uh, Earl Weaver was concerned about it and, and all a concern that he might get hurt because he didn't like to be hit back then. And well, Donnie he, was hit all the time. I mean, he, he just kind of leaned over time. that plate and he was taking it. Right. And, and he didn't take too kindly to it. And he said that he actually read in an airline magazine, an article about Steve Garvey and Steve used to get hit, and he had this, um, he worked out this uh, program in that he would keep track of his batting average on the pitches immediately after he was hit by a pitch hmm. or in that game, and he called it controlled aggression and how you get even by using your bat instead of charging the mound. (laughs) And Donnie took that to heart, and he would pick his moments. Now, one of the scariest things that anyone on the Yankees beat had ever witnessed was uh, after a game in which the Red Sox were pitching up around his head. And I don't know that they hit him, 
but a pitch might have gone behind his head. Mm. And after the game, Donnie um, drew a crowd of reporters. It was the Red Sox and Yankees, so mm-hmm. there's always going to be some tension. And he told the reporters that they should um, let the Red Sox pitchers know that whatever happened to the Red Sox infielders on plays at second base involving him was on them because they were throwing at him. (laughs) (laughs) I remember Phil's puppy turning (laughs) away and, and saying, um, that's that, that was the scariest thing he ever saw Mm. or heard. And Donnie was speaking at a whisper. Again, (laughs) he wasn't shouting, he wasn't ranting or anything. So, um, the next day, the Red Sox bullpen guys called Dave Rigetti over, the ambassador or the negotiator, I guess, <laughs> and and asked him to tell Don that it wasn't intentional, they weren't throwing at him, and they really needed him to understand. <laughs> <laughs> Let's calm but, this down here, boys. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And... Uh, the one thing you said, Donnie used to get hit all the time, and and I think until Craig Vigio came along, he held the major league record for right. being yeah. by pitches. And he told me that you never show pain, you never rub, you never let a pitcher know that um, that he actually hurt you. And he said the only time he ever showed pain was when Nolan Ryan hit him in uh, near his wrist. And that's the only time. So, again, towards the end of his career, he's batting. And now he's on the A's playing the Yankees. And in his first at bat, he gets hit. And he's running down to first base. And he's rubbing and rubbing and rubbing. Um, so, after the game, he st- you know he stayed in as DH. Um, mm-hmm. But after the game, I went and asked him if he was hurt. And he said, um, no, nub. And I said, it was numb? And he said, no, nub. Uh, what? <laughs> he goes, it hit the nub of the bat. I had to. Oh, you're faking? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should have known something was up if he was showing yeah, pain. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, he was... Um, one of my best friends. And after he left the Yankees, he called me over, gave me his um, phone number, and there was always a protocol. We had a great working relationship, Mm -hmm. but the day he was traded, uh, or the last day of the 85 season, he kind of sensed he wouldn't start the 86 season. Right. The Yankees... um, he uh, wanted me to be able to get in touch with him, took me out in the hallway, introduced me to Becky, his wife. Mm-hmm. And I heard about Becky. She'd heard about me. It was the first time we met. And they ended up um, becoming the godparents of my son. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, they were great. That's and, great. And he wanted to, he'd never been to Cooperstown. And he promised that he would come in 2017, um, but he started failing. And he called me one day and he said, um, 
that he wouldn't be able to come there. So he had asked Willie Randolph to go in his place. Oh, wow. and, and I'm like, Donnie, uh, it's not a wedding or anything. <laughs> a stand-in. Yeah. He goes, no, I had to do that. Oh, um, that's pretty he, special though, right? He thought of that. Yes, exactly. And little did I know that he was calling from the hospital and he had the multiple myeloma, had that horrific um, break in his leg when Vladimir Guerrero threw the ceremonial first pitch and Don's leg twisted and broke um, his his right leg. And um, he never told me, but he had fallen after that. And the doctor had told him, you can't break anything else. You can't mm. because it's a it's a disease that eats at the bone marrow. Right. And he broke his other leg, Becky told me later. And he went in the hospital and he never came out. So I I told him that I would come in uh, I would ask the ask the Hall of Fame if we could do my ceremony from Austin, Texas, and I'd come down and we'd have a big party. And if we couldn't do that, I would come immediately after the ceremony to see him. Uh, about a week after the ceremony, Becky called him and said that I should come down. And I went down to see him, and he was um, he was he was uh, very close, very close um, to passing on and. Got to spend the day with Becky and and with Don and and to hold his hand and and I gave him a picture that uh, Jean Fruth, the great photographer, had taken of of uh, I held up Donnie's picture, uh, a painting my dad did of Donnie, um, to show that he was with us at Cooperstown. And someone uh, snapped that picture, and I gave him that frame picture, and and told him that he was there with us. Oh, and, that's that's just so nice that I'm glad that you were able to see him and have yes. some closure there. Three days later, he was gone, and uh, he was my big brother. He became my big brother, and. Uh, Don, and and Josh's uncle Don, and uh, today to this day, if you talk to Griffey and Senior and Willie and Dusty and anybody, they all talk about Groove, and they, the writers. If you talk to Tracy and uh, Ringlesby and. Uh, the late Jerry Fraley and and Bob Elliott and uh, that he was the go-to guy. He was the captain of the go-to guys when Joe wasn't around. He <laughs> would he would take that. He knew about the union. He worked with Don Fear. He knew about the brotherhood. He knew about the struggles of becoming a manager of of becoming a coach becoming someone that baseball would pay attention to after their playing days because right. they had so much to offer and he never stopped caring. He never stopped caring. Um, 
Moss Klein of the Newark Star-Ledger maybe put it best. He said, um, we as writers often ask players how they're doing, and some of us make a point of asking how their families are doing, how their wives and children are doing. Mm -hmm. Don Baylor was the only player that he ever met who always asked how your family was doing. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's that's who he was. And it was such a privilege to help him write the autobiography. It was a it was an experience. I used to tease him. It took years off my life, but <laughs> I wouldn't give them back. Um, it's well, I'm cer- it was certainly worth it, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Well, you know what, Don Baylor, and you mentioned Dusty Baker, guys like that. They epitomize what it means to have an impact on other people. Yes. The same way that you got into baseball because of your love for Jackie Robinson and his impact on the game and several of the people that you talked about in this podcast, they all impacted others in their own ways. You know, and I think um, I'm so glad that we spoke about Don because, again, I feel like he's he's an athlete and a former manager who doesn't really get a lot of attention nowadays. And I think it's important to recall you know, what a guy like that did. And by the same token, I think it's so important to to talk about what the impact you had, you know, because you certainly did as a journalist. And all those years of, uh, you know, being a pioneer and doing great, great work. And um, even now, you're helping the future of sports journalism at Temple University in Philadelphia. As we mentioned, in October of 2021, Temple established the Claire Smith Center for Sports Media. You had already set up a scholarship in your mother's name to help students. You're really making a difference for the future of sports journalism, and I think that's uh, that's having an impact on others, and that says a lot about who you are, Claire. Todd, that's very kind of you. Um, like I said, we just get up and go to work, and and the rest, I guess, takes care of itself. And I, I always tell Josh, look in the mirror and ask my parents if we had a good day, if we did it right, if... Uh, if I, you know, I did it right and didn't embarrass them <laughs> or make them cringe, then it's a good day. And those days added up and and all of a sudden it was years and, and then decades. And silly me, like I said, never had a uh, an original idea after deciding to write about baseball. So. <laughs> Well, this has certainly been a good day for myself and our listeners, and you've been so kind with your time. We really do appreciate you spending this time with us, and it it has been an honor to shine a light on your career, and I'm so thankful that uh, we had a chance to do this, Claire. Thanks a million, Todd. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on.
Pit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on.